1: You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. This is the Adweek podcast where we talk about marketing, media, advertising, technology, pop culture in the end. Everything's an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm an editor with Adweek.com. With me as he is each week is Tim Nutt, our creative editor. Tim, thank you for joining us. Hey, David. Thanks for having me. And also back is frequent guest and podcast uh, producer, Christina Monlos, a staff writer for Adweek. Christina, always a pleasure.
2: Happy to be here.
1: All right. We've got a lot to talk about today. It's exciting. First, I was going to share a little anecdote. I was talking to someone the other day who was uh, starting a podcast, and she was just asking me some things that we've learned, I guess, uh, putting this one together. And one of them is I said, well, this one time we asked people at the beginning of the show instead of the end of the show to leave reviews for us on iTunes, and we had a huge turnout. We went from having, you know, like four reviews to having 24 reviews overnight. And, uh, and she was saying, Oh, wow. So did you start doing that at the beginning of every episode? <laughs> it's like, that like, that might have been a good idea, but no, mm-hmm. we did not. So consider this uh, my one other uh, request. If you have been listening to the show and you like it or don't like it, I don't know, if you have opinions on the show, uh, head over to iTunes uh, or your podcast app, wherever you get your podcasts, and leave a review. We would love it, and we love hearing your feedback, too, on what you think of it. And you can always email us at podcast at adweek.com. Just say, yes, good. That's all we want. Yes. We want a yes, yes. good review. <laughs> it was like... 34 reviews, just say yes, good, like we farmed it out to some Ukrainian review site. Or or to, uh, right. or, or to Emerald Nuts.
0: <laughs> yeah, to, to the Emerald
1: Nuts copywriting team. Uh, with that, we will dive in. We, like I said, we've got a big episode today because we are going to be recapping the best ads of the year so far because it's only July. And uh, so this is just our moment to take a step back while it's kind of quiet in the summer and cans over and we're kind of got a few months before we dig deep into the ads of the year and the agencies of the year and all that. So we're going to take stock and we've asked Tim to do the heavy lifting on figuring out which ones have been the best so far. And we're going to talk about those. We've also got some news, uh, some uh, pretty, pretty uh, heavy stuff coming out of Japan where there continues to be a legal and criminal case around a, a uh, staffer's suicide at an agency there. We will give you an update on that. There's also a new survey about uh, millennials and which brands they love. So we'll cover some of that before we dive into the best ads of the year. And with that, let's get to the news. Well, as I mentioned, Japan-based agency network Dentsu uh, has been involved in quite a uh, high-profile, globally uh, high-profile case uh, since uh, December 2015 uh, when a 24-year-old staffer named Matsui Takahashi killed herself and uh, shortly after posting on social media that she had worked more than 100 hours of overtime in a month. And since then that has really put Dentsu and I would say the ad industry uh, as a whole into the spotlight. Uh, It is an industry well-known for overwork and for really demanding very, very long hours of people. And Dentu has really become at the center of that because obviously it does not get much worse than this. They uh, there were a few updates on the case this week. Uh, some were just kind of the usual legal updates. They're not going to be pursuing charges against the executives. They are going to be pursuing uh, the case against corporations uh, for, I believe, they called it uh, suspected labor violations. Uh, but what's interesting is the uh, Dentsu corporate did put out a statement, uh, basically saying that they are really going to scale back uh, their uh, the the amount of hours they're asking people to work. So here's the full statement they sent to us at Adweek. We will move forward with an array of initiatives under our plan, including enhancing the working environment, reforming business processes, and cultivating human resources. We will thereby eliminate long working hours and ensure that our operations in Japan fully comply with local labor regulations while endeavoring to foster sustainable growth for our employees and the organization. Tim, do you think this case is having much of an impact uh, in the agency world beyond Dentsu?
0: Well, it's hard to say right now. I think the the important thing here is that the prosecutors have formally charged Dentsu with with responsibility for this. Uh, That's a big step. You know, it's a shame that it takes a criminal investigation uh, to change these kind of practices, you know, which common sense would tell you are just cruel and, and difficult to handle on the part of the employees um as as to whether it changes anything uh first of all in japan it's it 's hard to say i mean that statement that you read there 's nothing concrete in there uh as to what these changes are going to be you know as i understand it um they 've Last year, Dentsu made some changes. Uh, I read that they turned off the lights at 10 o'clock to try to get make sure employees don't work beyond that time. That doesn't seem like a particularly effective way to to rein in hours. Um, people can continue to work with the lights off; they work at home, or they, you know. I think that the issue here is that they're trying to squeeze uh, way more work out of their employees than uh, than the employees can handle, and that's a structural problem. That's not a, a tactical problem. That some that some introducing arbitrary rules is going to fix, you know. So it's hard to say. It is a problem, a huge problem in Asia generally. Um, It's a problem in in the U.S. Anyone who's worked at an ad agency in the U.S. knows that the hours are kind of uh, however long it takes to get the job done. And and when that's too long, obviously it becomes dangerous. So hopefully this will um, change the culture in some way, but I think it's way too early to tell.
1: I I, I feel like it's definitely been a much more – I don't know if "controversial" is the right word, but you know, a, a much more uh, vocal debate around overwork and work-life balance. You know, it's something that the industry has always kind of talked about. But I, you know, not to gender stereotype, but I do think millennials really kind of coming into uh, to take a you know take such a large swath of agency jobs, and they, as a generation, just aren't quite as super excited about working the eighty-hour weeks with nothing really in return. And I, I don't know, Christina. Am I am I oversimplifying millennials there?
2: I think so, especially because you know, not being in the office but still being on email is something that I think every person in almost every field is probably dealing with. Um, you know, it's it's just a different. I don't know. this This case is this case is really sad and hard to talk about. um, Because, you know, what what it also shows is that there, in general, when it comes to corporate work, you know, the well-being of the corporation is always going to be more important than the well-being of the employees. And that's what this case is fundamentally about, is that, like, you know, corporations really need to care about the people that are that are in them and that are a part of them.
1: I I think part of it's the nature of the work too, you know, because advertising is such a a mental exercise. You're not, you know, you're not breaking rocks. You're not lifting heavy stuff. And so it's really easy to say, Hey, you know, you're sitting in a posh, you know, $200 ergonomic chair. It's not that bad, which is true on some level. We've talked about on this podcast that, you know, you can go talk to any farmer or just about anybody for perspective on, on hard work. Uh, But, you know, I think that's a really easy way to kind of say, oh, you know, go ahead and put in the work. And, you know, we've run memos about that, that we've intercepted of, of executives saying, you know, congratulations, so-and-so for canceling all their personal plans and, you know, and putting in the hours on this pitch. And that does create a culture where it's like your, you know, your personal life and sanity are kind of secondary. But, it will be uh, interesting to see as this unfolds. So, you know, keep an eye out on adweek.com. We will certainly continue to be covering this as the criminal case proceeds. And as, a, you know, it'll be interesting to see if any other agencies uh, create policies or start to address this stuff head on instead of waiting for kind of a worst case scenario. Not to lump our morbidly, uh, kind of vaguely connected stories here in the news, but we did have a really interesting piece that Christina wrote uh, and personally experienced uh, the promotion of a new film called A Ghost Story. Uh, created by the film production company A24, which I believe did Moonlight and a few other uh, pretty, pretty big-name films. And uh, they opened a ghost store, Uh, as an activation to promote this. Christina, you were there, you went through the whole thing. What is it?
2: It's a store where you can get a ghost sheet fit on you. And then they like put you in a room with this really ethereal soundtrack. It has infinity mirrors and a bunch of, and, and like three other mannequins that are also in ghost sheets. So you can sort of like sit there and think about time and space and... I don't know what it means to be a human being or to be alive. It it sounds goofy when you're talking about be, like having a ghost sheet put on you. But the whole experience is actually curated in this way where it does accomplish its goal of, of generally making you have an existential paranoia attack. Um, <laughs> Not that that's Sounds really the fun. goal, but kind of. I don't know <laughs> if you if you see the movie, you'll know more what I'm talking about. I mean, obviously, your opinion on Casey Affleck, because he's the star and the man under the ghost sheet, will affect whether or not you want to see this movie. Um, I think the filmmaker David Lowry, he oddly enough, he directed Pete's Dragon, but he also. Directed a bunch of other indie stuff, and he's he's made something really beautiful and profound. And they were able to take that and sort of put it into the form of a store. It's all very curated, and you could think it's super dumb, but it's it's so well done that uh, you know it's it's kind of worth it. I don't know these these kinds of um, exper- experiences are. Something that it's not just for like a brand to put you in, I don't know, some sort of like dunk tank. If you're like Dunkin' Donuts, it's like the way that you're able to immerse someone in something when you really think about it conceptually it can be really
1: powerful. So this is structurally similar to the movie, right? The the movie is about him going through a similar kind of process of being a ghost and seeing the world and thinking about i guess infinity or you know, yeah
2: the, the movie is almost silent like there are very few lines in it but you're sort of watching someone um you know go back to the house that they shared with their partner and then um the partner leaves and then there's you know other people that come into the house Kesha's also briefly in this movie all right um,
0: trailer looks really cool
2: it's it's really cool. I mean, A24 has has been doing very interesting stuff when it comes to the release of films. I mean, they also had Twentieth Century Women. They created a whole zine for that. They had you know Moonlight, and obviously that that run was very interesting. Uh, they had Room too, and by some of the screenings around the award ceremony. Um, your, or the whole, like, awards lead-up, um, they built the room that Brie Larson's character was in. They had that available in Los Angeles for people to go and try out, which is something.
1: I think I'd rather have a sheet over my head than be stuck in that uh, cell room. But uh,
2: yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Having had the sheet over my head and had, like, a very... A woman with like a very soothing voice and like cream-colored clothing, you know, put this sheet over my head and asked me questions about what I thought about space and time and like, you know, what my uh, oldest memory was. It, it's all this thing that kind of it messes with your mind a little bit. And uh, having just had a birthday, I was like, oh man, I'm getting older this, this, this New York magazine article is out about the end of humanity. And this whole experience is about thinking about, you know, what it means to be alive. It was a lot. It was a lot.
0: And, you know, I I do like these, um, store pop-up store activations sometimes though, they can be quite cool just to go like JetBlue does this a lot where they have a little space down in Soho somewhere where they, they use it a lot to do these little experiences. I think they, they had uh, like a 1960s travel agency that they made a little while back, and then Tiger Beer from Singapore had a really cool thing they did on Canal Street that was kind of similar, where they brought in all sorts of um, art and fashion and, and design um, stuff and put it in this sort of secondhand store that no one knew what it was, but you could you could actually buy the stuff. It's kind of neat when these brands kind of go create sort of a real world extension of what their what their message is.
2: I think that's true. I just the only thing that I would say, and I'm saying this as someone who lives in New York, but I just wish that more brands would do this outside of the New York LA bubble, um, or bubbles, because I I don't know. I can just imagine that it might be a cool way to find new customers and new people to be excited about you or your product or your messaging if you're going across the country or, you know, in areas where it's not necessarily as expected to see something like this? Well,
1: I thought that was kind of the genius of the Gilmore Girls, the the Luke's Diner pop-up, right? Because they, you know, they partnered with places all over the country. uh, And they had one here where I live in Birmingham, which to your point, you know, we don't don't get a lot of marketing attention. Um, so, So I think, yeah, if you can find ways to scale these. But in the end, I don't know if they really need to, because it's the, you know, all they need is a Christina Monlos to come in and write about it, or, you know, for (laughs) some YouTube influencer to come experience it. And then that kind of gives them the the reach they need there's also a certain irony in like the fact that in the early 2000s you know brands were trying to create virtual experiences around their real products and now we've become so digital that brands are trying to create real experiences <laughs> around their virtual stuff you know oh god yeah. yeah world's upside down all right um well thank you for telling us about your experience in the ghost sheet and definitely mm-hmm. uh, if you look up a, a ghost story or a ghost store and christina you will find that story I wanted to talk briefly about a story we broke over the holiday. We did take last week off for the holiday week, and uh, we wrote an exclusive story about a new survey that came out of millennials, and it was asking them uh, basically which brands have turned you into customers, uh, which ones have you actually been a customer of in the last 30 days, and uh, there were some really interesting responses. Not so much in the number one, you know, the kind of the top scoring brands. They were about what you'd expect. YouTube, Facebook, Google, Amazon, Walmart, which again, this isn't about, you know, which brands they love, it's about which brands they use. Uh, Netflix, Instagram, Apple, Wikipedia, Visa, those were the kind of the most used, the, the ones people were most frequently customers of, but in the most improved category, it was kind of fascinating. Uh, so the, these are the brands that may not be the most loved, but they showed the, the most growth among millennial users or customers. Number one was Uber which is kind of fascinating because this survey was done in just the last few months. So it's not like, you know, this is before Uber had a bunch of their problems. It was before the CEO stepped down, but that's about it. Uh, Instagram was number two. And then uh, Lyft and Snapchat. So right there in the top four of most improved, you've got Uber and Lyft, Instagram and Snapchat, which to me is kind of a sign that this is less about brand affinity and more about just usage, you know, like category usage that more and more people are using ride-sharing apps, more and more people are using stories uh, type apps with Instagram and Snapchat. I don't know what, what Christina. What was your take on that list?
2: No, I th- I think you're exactly right. It's it's a matter of like if you're in a city that doesn't have uh, Lyft, you're gonna download Uber, even if you might feel like the company has questionable ethics. <laughs> It's really a convenience play with a lot of younger consumers.
1: There are ones on the list where I think have made good inroads. Delta is a good one. Adidas, uh, you know, there were several kind of more traditional brands that have shown a lot of growth. Uh, TLC is growing among millennials. Uh, But yeah, to your point, you know, we did interview some of the folks behind the survey and they talked about that consistently you see that uh, while people may say, you know, that their ethics drive their decisions or that they want to pick companies they support, in the end, you know, that financial you know your own financial interest and your own convenience are two of the most powerful features so to your point uber may be the cheapest it may be the most available Uh, there's a lot that is going for it where even if you don't feel great about using it but definitely uh, check out robert clara's full article on that we called it i think new look at millennial's favorite brands Uh, so take a look at that and with that we're going to get on to our big discussion of the week which is the best ads of the year so far
0: All right, Tim, it's your show. Let's uh, let's get into it. All right. Well, uh, everybody loves a list. Uh, we do our ads ads of the year in December, usually in the first week of December. So we figured, why not do an ads of the year so far, which is really, uh, we went back through the first six months of the year and just looked at kind of the stuff that we really liked, um, you know, from TV and video to uh, outdoor to even some print ads, uh, some social executions that were interesting, uh, and a handful of stunts as well. Um, I think we probably should start with outdoor because, um, first of all, we just love outdoor at Adweek. Um, but also, I mean, fearless girl it really, I think has to be, uh, I think it would be hard to argue that that anything else has been quite as breakthrough as fearless girl. This is the statue that McCann New York made, uh, for state street global advisors. Um, it, uh, they, they put it in uh, Bowling green park down at down on wall street, uh, she's facing off against the the bull uh, that had been there since 1989. She's got her hands on her hips, kind of staring the bull down. And uh, this was the beginning of March, I believe, that she that she showed up, kind of uh, in the middle of the night. And by by sort of mid morning or noon that first day, she was already kind of a sensation. Um, it became kind of the place to take a selfie in Manhattan, particularly for tourists. And, you know, it swept through the Cannes Festival a couple of weeks ago and won four Grand prizes. So it's beloved by everybody from the public to the ad industry. And, you know, I, I think it's uh, hard to put anything else at number one so far this year as far as an, an amazing ad.
1: Now, now, just for logistics here, are you going to be – are these in ranked – order of any kind or are you just starting with fearless girl because it's kind of the biggest talker you
0: know uh, uh when, when we do the story on the on the site we're not going to probably rank them at this point we're going to do rankings at the end of the year but these are just you know I, I just wanted to bring this one up first since it's kind of the the shining star of the, of the group so far this year i would say
2: so you're just teasing our readers and listeners with like later in december you'll get the rankings but now <laughs> yes this is probably Here's an ad for our
0: dis, for our december list
2: Exactly.
1: Uh, you know, what's funny is I was at a party on uh, Saturday uh, among normal humans, you know, who have nothing to do with advertising. And we ended up playing charades. And one of the answers was Fearless Girl.
2: No. How
1: excited were you? Well, not excited because they, they wouldn't accept Fearless Girl. Like, like I was correct. And I was yelling out Fearless Girl. And they were like, no, that's not what it's really called.
2: What, what were they calling it? De- oh, man.
1: Defiant, Defiant Girl. No. Oh, so it's a failure of an ad, really. Well, well, I mean, it's like you always hear people say, but no one can name State Street Global Advisors as the, as the client yeah, behind well, it. But true. I would say apparently they struggled to even come with it. But I was just – it was one of those just – oh man, I was so frustrated. <laughs> I was like, but no, That's trust really me, that trust me, I just got back from Cannes. <laughs> I had to hear,
0: I had to hear the phrase Fearless Girl about 7,000 times. Oh man. Well, we, in Cannes, we actually sat down with uh, Lizzie Gumbiner, uh Lizzie Wilson and, and Tally Gumbener and, uh, Tally had a pretty interesting story. Maybe we could play a little audio of that interview where um, Tally tells us a little bit about the first person to ever see Fearless Girl, which is kind of an interesting story.
1: Yeah, and these are, just to clarify, these are the, this the creative team at McCann behind uh, Fearless Girl, so let's listen to that.
3: I saw the very first woman who ever saw Fearless Girl, and she was this um, Chinese woman probably about in her 50s, and her she, she spoke very little English, and I was standing maybe like a few feet away from her and I just watched her kind of curiously walk up to the girl and look at the girl and look at the bull and she didn't even read the plaque in front of her. She had no idea what this was. All she saw was, you know, a little girl standing up to a bull and she, this amazing look just spread over her face and she hugged the girl and she kissed the girl and she was like, I love her, I love her. And it was this incredibly intimate moment and I like, I've had very little contact with this woman. Obviously, a junior producer we chased after and was like, will you sign this waiver so we can film it? (laughs) And she was like, I don't understand what you're saying. Um, And I'm kind of actually grateful that um, that wasn't captured and and commercialized in any sort of pieces of film, because I feel a little bit of ownership over it. And also just to have had that be a sort of pure moment in and of itself is really special.
0: So I mean I love that one, and then you know the other outdoor thing I wanted to, to mention was the Delta selfie wall that Wyden and Kennedy made a few months ago, maybe about a month ago. Um, they painted um, these exotic locales on a wall in Brooklyn, and they're designed to kind of look like uh, you can kind of go up to them and take your selfie like as like as though you're actually there. And I believe uh, it was a it was a partnership with it with a dating app. Um, because these are supposed to make you look like you're a world traveler, even if you don't have the money to go. And it was an interesting thing for Delta to do, uh, you know, because obviously they would like to fly you to those places for real, but this was kind of a, uh, one of those kind of shout-outs to people who can't actually afford to fly. It was aimed at sort of younger millennials who the best they could do is take the subway to Brooklyn and kind of snap their, uh, their selfie in front of the wall. Uh, really, really well executed, and just one of, the, one of my favorite outdoor pieces of the year so far as well.
2: The dating app was Tinder.
0: Tinder Just exactly.
2: FYI. Exactly.
0: <laughs> so I haven't been there. Christina, have you actually been to the, the,
2: the to the dating wall? To the no
0: the wall. The dating wall. <laughs> it's it's, it's one called of the, the Delta dating wall. It's one of those things really? that um, yeah. It's a you know it looks so great in photos. I wonder what it looks like in person. Is it really called the Dating Wall?
2: It's really called the Dating Wall.
0: Oh, I assumed it was called like the Selfie Wall.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> I'm going to lose at charades. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Right um, in the headline there, the Delta Dating Wall. Oh, yeah, so, mm-hmm. so widening and sense. Kennedy did that one. Widen and Kennedy, New York uh, did that one. And then another thing that was an outdoor campaign as well as a print campaign that I really loved um, this year was the Pass the Hind stuff that we wrote about a few months ago. Also, one pretty big in can, it was this campaign that um, originated in, in in the show Mad Men, you know, uh, Matt Weiner and his writers, um, you know, came up with a, a, a campaign that Don pitches to the Heinz clients called Pass the Heinz, and it really just shows food without any ketchup on it, and it's almost like a got milk strategy, like years before got milk, where it's uh, the absence of the product is kind of the, the point of the ads. And so uh, the folks at David Miami, uh, big fans of the show, particularly one of the ACDS there who was on our Creative One Hundred, said he was a big fan of the show, and he had this idea to take those ads and, and you know pitch Heinz on them for real. So they um, they went to the client and they they took they couldn't find I guess the original the original artwork that that uh, Matt Weiner and his team had. But they got Matt Weiner's approval to do this, and essentially they created um, assets that looked exactly like. So they, they recreated the ads pretty much as they were in the show, pitched them to Heinz. Heinz loved the idea. Obviously, it's a big PR stunt. Heinz uh, Hines, Hines claimed that they loved the strategy as well. Who knows whether they did or whether they just wanted to, to you know, the PR hit on this. Um, but they ran the ads in New York, uh, I believe in the New York Post, and also uh, three billboards. Uh, one shows fries, one is a burger, uh, one is a, a a steak, which don't put ketchup on your steak if you're listening to this, but, um, yeah, I mean, I I thought this was obviously a really fun kind of defictionalization um, idea. And it's also, it was kind of an inspired media buy and just the whole thing. Um, David Miami did a wonderful job with it.
2: I walked by the, uh, 49th street fry. They had, they had the fries up on 49th street and uh, broadway or 7th avenue um for for like a month and those fries looked so oily and <laughs> yeah, they're, so they're not attractive gross no. they're like the crinkle that, fries right yeah and it it really does like having spent so much time s- seeing that uh they just need ketchup like you, they look so gross <laughs> that you just have to put the ketchup on it and i i really want to know if the crinkle fries looking that disgusting or the steak looking that i don't know like uh, every every bit of food that they're showing looks gross <laughs> that you need a condiment on it i don't know man
0: yeah it's good it's i, good I do wonder about the art direction for the ads on the show right cuz i assume they tried to make the fries look like 1960s fries or what they would they would have looked like back then, which is a little different than now. Probably more like, you know, greasy diner stuff than, than, you know, even I, I think McDonald's fries are now kind of the standard, right? When you think of fries, which are definitely a lot sort of less greasy looking than these were. Anything else in the, uh, in the outdoor space? Uh, well just, uh, you know, I, I did want to mention a print campaign also by David Miami, which was the Burger King, uh, burning stores campaign where, uh, they, you know, they took photos of, um, Burger Kings, that were actually on fire uh, from I think three different locations around the world, um, and uh, they just said "flame grilled since 1954." That was all the only copy on them, and it had the firefighters trying to put the fires out. And I don't know. I, I know these were a little controversial, uh, David. I think I, I think you weren't a, a huge fan of them, um, but I thought they were pretty cool. And they actually no, they, no, I, I I'm a fan. I
1: I just. Um... No, I think it's an interesting campaign because it's almost trolling. Like it's almost knowing going into it that people are going to be giving you the actually, you know, actually those are electrical fires. And actually, <laughs> you know, it kind of – I I, I, sure. I don't remember what my initial thought – I think my initial thought was that it was spec, you know, that it wasn't mm-hmm. real. Because it just looks like the kind of fake campaign you see on ads of the world mm-hmm. um, of like what I would do if I were, you know, that – and so – you know, that is the most impressive aspect is that it actually got made uh, with client approval because it is such a, like turning a negative into a positive. And they really took a lot of pride in it uh, at Cannes this year when they were named uh, Creative Marketer of the Year.
0: Yeah, they did. And, you know, we sat down with uh, Fernando Machado at Burger King and also Anselmo Ramos from David. And both of those guys uh, talked about uh, this campaign. So maybe we'll just, we could listen to a little bit of what they had to say about it. Burning Stories, like, I think it's one of my favorite print ads of all time. So if you Google Burger King flame greeting or Burger
4: King fire, if you, if you do that, if you Google that and, and you click on image just to see what image come, you will see, like, loads of restaurants on fire. But we took advantage of that fact, uh, which in theory is something negative, and we turned it around, like, a, with a print that I think is, like, self-deprecating and I think it's hard to get wrong when you do something self-deprecating. I mean people
0: empathize and and think it's funny. So yeah that's really the sort of the print and out-of-home stuff that I wanted to mention. Um, As far as TV video uh, you know, I think the, the first couple that I'd love to talk about would be uh, the New York Times campaign. The truth is hard to find, and also the Atlantic uh, piece. I'm uh, am I typecast with Michael K. Williams? You know, these two campaigns really came around kind of in the the you know the first days of the of the Trump administration. Obviously, you know, fake news is is a big thing, and and these uh, journalistic places that are really trying to find the truth, um, they're seeing. You know, big increases in in many cases in, in in readership and circulation, which is giving them some money, some more money to advertise. And you know, the Times in particular is taking advantage of that through Droga5, and then this this ad for the Atlantic, which was so good with Michael K. Williams from Widening Kennedy, called "I'm Typecast." I thought those two uh, campaigns were really really powerful uh, in, in very different ways. Um, maybe we could listen briefly to the "Mi Typecast." This is a piece where. Michael K. Williams is kind of sitting there, um, asking himself, quite literally. There's several versions of him that appear in the in the video, you know, asking himself if he's if he's been typecast in his career because he always seems to play gangsters.
4: You think I'm being typecast? I don't know. You think this cat is typecast? It's a fucking cat, you know. Ain't got much choice. What if he moved to a new neighborhood, you know, hung out with the poodle crowd, did poodle things, you know, become a poodle? Still be a cat, you know? But what if he convinced himself that he was a poodle and everyone else that he was a poodle? Wouldn't that make him a poodle? That's a good point. I mean, weird as shit, but that's a good point. And this whole metaphor is bullshit, yo. You hear me? You think everybody don't got a role to play? Huh? You think a white boy could have played old You think you could play a president? I could. And I think we've seen the last black president for a while.
0: So this was directed by David Shane uh, from from O Positive, and he's such a great director. And it was really theatrical piece, and I just loved the dialogue and the whole idea behind it. Um, I thought it was a wonderful ad. What did you guys think about it?
2: It's so well done. Um, it's one of the few ads at like Fearless Girl where I've seen people who have nothing to do with advertising sharing it and getting excited about it. And, you know, obviously that has to do with the actor. He's incredible, but, um, you know, just just the way that they're able to take this idea of asking yourself questions and, and not just, you know, put that in like, here's this story from the Atlantic where we ask questions and you should ask questions too. But, you know, to have someone of that caliber, I don't know. It's just a beautiful piece of work.
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess my only beef with it is that it, I don't know how effective it is as an ad, um, but as content, it's great. You know, it's. I think that's. I don't even know if that is a criticism, but you know, if I saw this, uh, it, I learned about it first through, uh, through Ad through working here. So of course I approached it as an ad for The Atlantic. But you know what I mean. Like if you just see this being passed around, it's not even really going to occur to you that that's what this is.
0: Totally. Um, but, you know, but again, that's not a negative. On the flip side, the Times, the New York Times campaign is very, very focused on what the Times reporters do, how hard their jobs are, uh, and, and then by extension, you know, what they're uncovering is, is the facts. Because otherwise, why would they be out there doing this? Uh, and two of the uh, very, very notable pieces involved photojournalists for the Times kind of in voiceover describing... Um, You know, scenes, uh, I think one of them is is, uh, refugees are coming ashore uh, from the ocean, and the other one takes place, I believe, in in Iraq, where it's a battle scene. And these Times uh, photojournalists are there, and they're describing, you know, what had happened. And and it has this really cool visual effect and also audio effect of, you know, these photojournalists were taking a ton of photos, you know, as they were there, and they were just letting the... Uh, you know, letting their cameras kind of taking one photo after another. So they showed a lot of these photos, you know, in succession with kind of the shutter sound uh, going. And then eventually at the end, they settled on the photo that was actually published in the the paper and on the website. And, you know, the stories are really evocative. Uh, Darren Aronofsky directed these and he, you know, the direction is really, uh, really grabs you. It's very arresting. And uh, the whole thing—I mean—they did a bunch of work. They, they, um, Droga5 created a, a spot for the Oscars that was kind of text-only with some, some audio in the background uh, about current events, and really just drilling down into this idea of, of the truth and how the truth has become—it's um, being exploited so much on, on all sides, and that you know the Times really wanted people to know that this is—you know—their mission was really just to to find the truth and and to. Uh, to, to sort of expose the people who would who would you know try to undermine it. I mean, really powerful work, also. And and Colleen Letty over at, at uh, Droga5 um, spoke to us in Cannes about this campaign too. So maybe we can listen to her her thoughts on it.
2: It's really important that the New York Times drive subscriptions in order to pay for the the high integrity of journalism that they provide. So. We didn't want to just change perceptions in the Oscars and have people understand that that the truth is hard and it's worth pursuing. But we also needed people to change their behavior and start to pay for the news. And um, what was really special about this campaign is that at the highest level, it changed people's perceptions about journalism, but also started to give that inside peek around The New York Times with with some of the journalist films and really helping to understand how they have such a, a a valuable role in in that integrity of journalism, and it did drive subscriptions. In fact, the New York Times had its higher, highest quarter of subscriptions to date.
0: So yeah, I mean, I thought the Times did a, a fantastic job with this. I don't know if if they're preaching to the choir, but but what do you guys think?
1: Well, I I think to the, to the question of preaching to the choir, I mean, I think that's actually to their credit is that they're not pursuing people who hate the New York Times or who hate journalism. You know what I mean? Like they're not trying to convert. Uh, I think they're trying to impassion. And so as we've talked about on the podcast before, you know, I became a New York Times print subscriber for the first time in uh, 15 years, uh, this year and, you know, and a digital subscriber, of course. But, um, you know, it's not like—I it, think there are millions or at least hundreds of thousands of people like me who really admire the journalism they do but haven't valued it uh, as much as we do this year and sometimes have to be reminded uh, of the you know, the price they pay uh, to do this. So, you know, in that respect, I think it's a very effective campaign, and it really does—it's hard to, like— you know, some jackasses tweeting about fake news every time the New York Times print something, but then to see, you know, the, the that they literally put their lives on the line uh, every day to, to get this stuff. And you saw it today uh, as we record this, you know, D- Donald Trump Jr. released a bunch of emails uh, basically admitting that, you know, that a Russian attorney reached out to him and uh, wanted to share negative info about uh, Hillary Clinton and the only reason he tweeted it is because the New York Times told him, we're going to print your emails. We got a hold of them. And he said, well, give me a little more time to respond. And they said, okay. And then he tweeted them just to, like, kind of steal some of their thunder. That's the only reason that info is out there is because, you know, the New York Times has just been pounding that bush as hard as they can trying to, to shake things loose. So, yeah, it's a, it's a great example of the tenacity and the, you know, that they bring to that to that product.
0: Yeah.
2: And this is exactly what they're trying to do right now because, you know, as publishers are realizing that the ad dollars are, you know, at, with Google and with Facebook, they have to have subscribers. They have to have people, you know, coming coming to their their sites and paying for the content. And so, you know, I, t- I spoke to the New York Times business side about this and they wanted to prove their worth to people and to get people to understand what they're paying for.
0: Totally. Um you know, and also to show Droga Five's range, maybe we could move on to another campaign that they did this year that we really liked, which was the the Mailchimp. Um, did you mean Mailchimp campaign? This was a campaign that is so goofy. You know, it takes the Mailchimp name and and reimagines it uh, as like Mail Shrimp and Jail Blimp and Kale Limp, and they did these goofy videos around each one, and they had this very very interesting online campaign that had all sorts of touch points in it. Uh, I actually won the Grand Prix one of one of three Grand Prix that can gave out to cyber campaigns this year. and uh, really, really wacky goofy stuff and it couldn't be more different than the, the than the times thing. And uh, you know I think sometimes you know, droga gets knocked for, for having a style, but I think this year um, they've shown that they they can do a lot of different you know a lot of different things. And uh, let's listen to one of the Mailchimp TV spots because they were they were pretty amusing.
4: How can I be who i meant to be? Become my dream. Follow my destiny. I'm more than a sandwich made a dream. I believe in myself. I'm not afraid I'm not a whim to be like you male boy dress like you male boy and one day I know
0: I'll become male shrimp. so there's that and then you know I think if we went if we go back and look at the Super Bowl you know I still come back to the 84 lumber uh, commercial the journey um, from the Pittsburgh agency Brunner you know this was a, a an all but unknown company in Pennsylvania that uh, decided to shell out you know 10 million dollars plus for for 90 seconds of airtime on the Super Bowl and it turned out that those 90 seconds weren't even the whole ad it was about half the ad and they sent people online to see the rest and uh it was a very resonant topic it was you know about immigration and they were you know, I think 84 Lumber really was trying to recruit people, uh, recruit uh, immigrants to work for the company, and they really targeted the ad at, at immigrants. And they, you know, it was a celebration of immigrant labor and what what immigrants have built in this country. And uh, you know, it showed uh, it showed the wall, like uh, Trump's wall, uh, you know, and it showed uh, 84 Lumber guy kind of uh, basically creating a door in the wall and and, uh, through which an immigrant family comes in. And it was very provocative and it was really, really well shot. Uh, But it was just, uh, you know, it it was this moment on the Super Bowl, I think, that really... You know in in a very, very tense time in the country, uh, I think Budweiser did this too. you know they they really uh, leaned into those tensions and and created some of the more memorable work on the game.
1: yeah, I, you know i I love the fact that they crashed their website. you know that it's it's one of those uh, driving people to a microsite is almost an outdated approach at the end of a Super Bowl. Ad. People kind of move to hashtags because it's like, well, no one's going to actually click through to your site. you know, it's the Super Bowl. They're mm-hmm. busy. And then that one came up and people just melted that site, uh, right away, you oh. know, which says a lot for, for, you know, what they did.
0: It was good for us because we sent people to our site and we got a lot of traffic out of it. <laughs> yeah. It was like this. I
1: remember <laughs> someone, someone even asked later, they're like, what's with this huge, like one hour spike in traffic we got on,
0: <laughs> on Super Bowl? Oh, And totally. I was like,
1: thank you, 84 lumber. Yeah, totally.
0: Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, another one we should talk about is the Nespresso ad with George Clooney, um, Christina, maybe you could chat about this one. I thought this one was really fun. It was basically had Clooney on a cross-country road trip.
2: Yeah, I mean, it was like putting Clooney in a bunch of different iconic movie scenes. And, um, you know, so much of it was just watching Clooney in his face and how he was kind of like almost joking with the camera, but not really... Um, I don't know. It was it was very interesting acting from Clooney, and um, the Nespresso work, which I don't like any of the other commercials, aside from maybe the Danny DeVito one, which is just so strange. Um, but this this one was just I don't know. It was it was really well done in the way that they were able to drop him into these scenes and make his presence known and make you think about Nespresso. But then you know, also make you think about the iconic scene.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think Clooney has appeared in Nespresso ads in Europe for a long time. And, and a lot of these ads were very pan European. So they, they have to work without dialogue and, you know, it, they end up being quite slapstick. Usually, you know, the lack of dialogue, it ends up being quite cartoony. And this, this spot was also kind of cartoony. It was, it was by McCann, New York, by the way, um, who's ha- who have had a great year uh, creatively. And, you know it was basically Clooney popping up in the middle of these um classic hollywood scenes you know road trip scenes and he doesn't have any dialogue and so a gesture or a look uh, in particularly i love the one from psycho when he's driving along with janet lee and she's heading toward the motel and he kind of like does a double mm-hmm. take and looks at her and it's just this hilarious moment uh, i think he delivers the voiceover at the end um David, what do you think of, of this one?
1: Oh, I mean, yeah, I, I've never liked Nespresso ads. I've never liked uh, celebrity ads in general. Uh, we've talked about on the podcast that, you know, to me, it's it's just kind of the lowest, the lowest hanging fruit. And so I just was shocked. I remember watching this ad when we first wrote it up and being like, wait, wait,
0: it's good. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes, good. Totally. Uh, um, what else? A few more we can mention briefly. I don't know if we have to get into into depth too much on them the, the the pool boy ad that santo did for coca-cola i thought was really great i thought they should have run that on the super bowl you know they ran some more kind of workaday spots from fitzgerald and co on the super bowl but i thought this one kind of harked back to that parenting one that they did for coca-cola life a couple years ago that was so good really saturated colors really kind of a fun inclusive um you know plot of the ad and you know, some of my it was one of my favorite Coke ads that I've seen uh, in quite a while. I also like the Samsung ostrich ad from Leo Burnett, which was, you know, this for so many years. Uh, VR has been this um, thing that's been so hard to advertise. You know, you can't show what the experience is like in, in a video, really. I mean, you can, but it, it's not the same. Uh, it's also just one of those things where if you show someone with he- with a headset on, it's it's pretty goofy. Uh, and so I really, you know, finally Samsung and Burnett came up with this idea of kind of dramatizing what the experience of VR is like. And so they, they based it around, you know, an ostrich who obviously it's a flightless bird. It can't fly. He puts on the, the goggles, which is a pretty funny image to begin with. And it dreams that he's flying. And it was just such a simple idea and it was really, really well made that the CGI on it was really, really great. And, you know, finally a clever ad for VR, like who knew?
2: I want to hang out with that ostrich. <laughs> yeah,
0: definitely. I, I wanted to give
1: a quick shout out. I don't know if it'll it'll make our list of the best, especially at the end of the year, but one that I thought was just kind of a great message at a great time was the ad that Expedia did. I think it's officially called Train, mm-hmm. uh, but it was a, it was about a, a woman kind of going on this journey around the world and experiencing all these different uh, cultures and moments and these wonder and it's gorgeously shot. But most importantly, it was launched on the day of Donald Trump's inauguration. And so it began airing uh, that day during news coverage of the inauguration. And they're certainly not the only brand that took advantage of, of kind of that moment. But, uh, you know, it's just it was one of those examples of where in isolation that ad, I might have been like, oh, that's a nice ad. You know, it's she's she's helping rescue, uh, you know, at one point refugees who you know, are in, in danger of drowning. And she's doing all these, And she's aging over the course of the ad until she's, you know, kind of an older woman by the end. And it's talking about the impact that travel has on your life. And uh, just, you know, a beautiful ad, but then timed so perfectly. To me, that's kind of one of those best case scenarios of just creating something for the moment, but then also, you you know, a year later is still going to be an incredible piece of marketing. So, you know, congrats to Expedia. And uh, the agency was 180LA, who's also had quite a good year as well. They took home several Grand Prix for their work with Boost Mobile So at uh, Cannes, so good year for 180
0: LA. Totally. Let's talk social for a moment. Um, I think David and I, you were talking, you and I were talking the other day about Wendy's and, and really their whole year and social this year it has been almost like a case study of how to do it. Um, they got in a spat with McDonald's that was really kind of interesting and they had some zingers uh, for McDonald's. Then they, they were involved in the whole nugs for Carter, uh, thing uh, and and that whole phenomenon. (laughs) The most shared tweet of all time.
2: Thing, nugs for Carter. Uh, how, do you thing. how do you even
0: describe it? Because it wasn't really, you know, this is a this is a brand kind of jumping on something that was kind of presented to them, not really their idea. Although it has won ad awards now. I think it won several. I think nugs for Carter won several Lions and can believe it or not. So uh, it is considered, you know, a, a, a Wendy's production, even though they were reacting to something more than anything else. But. Um, the Wendy's, the, the back and forth with McDonald's w- was pretty hilarious also. Um, and then, you know, I don't know what it is about food brands, but Denny's also had that Zoom tweet. You know, Erwin er, uh, <laughs> Penland works on, on Denny's social. Uh, VML, by the way, works on Wendy's social. Um, but they, you know, Denny's kind of jumped on that that meme where you zoom in on the picture and you have to move around to read various messages. And, you know, that was one of their best, most most read uh, tweets ever. So. Pretty, you know, I think uh, Twitter fails have given way to sort of these giant Twitter moments for a lot of these brands, and that's become kind of the uh, the standard lately. David, what did you think about the uh, some of those 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 two, the Wendy's and the Denny's tweets? Yeah,
1: I mean, Wendy's has been a really fascinating case study because um, you know it, it kind of famously was two women uh, who were who were working on that. Uh, one ended up uh, leaving uh, because she just uh, and and wrote a long medium piece about the experience of of kind of being trashed by people all over the internet uh, when you know people found out who she was uh, because they had posted some stuff that you know some stuff that made people angry they had uh, she had accidentally posted a meme that I don't think she understood and kind of got shredded for that and so it was a very difficult experience but then on the other hand uh, you know the other woman who worked on it was named to our creative 100 and has is now one of the kind of the best recognized uh, you know social media uh, content creators in the industry. So even the behind-the-scenes stuff, it's just one of those that uh, on the outside, it's easy to say, man, Wendy's having a great year, but, you know, making the sausage on the inside is is a, a different thing, uh, mm. not to mix our food metaphors there. <laughs> uh, but but <laughs> I, I, I remember being pleasantly surprised when I saw how much pride Wendy's was taking in those social exchanges, uh, because it's really easy to just kind of want to walk back that stuff once you start making fun of McDonald's, but instead I think they really saw the value in it. Uh, with Denny's, you know, I think they're they're a little more, uh, it's a little rarer that, that they hit one out of the park, but yeah, when they did with their existential crisis uh, Zoom tweet, <laughs> it just goes to show, I was just like, I'm so used to Denny's just being dumb, dumb jokes, you know, and they're, they're self you know, re- Referential dumb jokes, but still, it, it was you know, they really kind of killed it with that one.
0: As the world hurtles toward its end, uh, a lot of brands are taking a page from nihilist Arby's, aren't they? Yeah. In terms of their <laughs> it total. really is. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's talk about stunts too, I guess, which is our last little group here. Um, you know, Nike, uh, through Widening Kennedy, that you know, they've what's amazing to me is that Nike's really had a resurgence in TV uh, and video advertising over the last year, you know, a lot of the stuff. Happened in 2016, you know the Dada Ding from from India. They also had a pretty amazing campaign in December that was kind of text only. That kind of it was called "Are We Running Today?" and it was really about uh, you know how to get people you know off of their social devices and away from their televisions. Really, really culturally relevant. Um, but they also did something uh, more recently called Breaking Two, which was less of an ad and more of a, a movement to try to break the two-hour uh, barrier in the, in marathon running. Um, I, I believe the record is uh, two ten or somewhere thereabouts, maybe a little under that. Um, so they, they basically launched a whole campaign um, with with product uh, at the very at, at the center of it, of course, where they they got three marathon runners to. Um, kind of run a whole marathon with with pacers next to them and they were really trying to break the the two-hour barrier, and they got pretty close. I think uh, I think the lead runner ended up uh, finishing in two hours, 25 seconds. So they didn't break the two-hour mark, but they sure are close. And, you know, probably if they keep up their efforts, I imagine they will break the two-hour barrier. And it really kind of reminded me, it wasn't on the same scale, but it reminded me quite a bit of the Red Bull Red Bull Stratus with Felix Baumgartner from a few, a few years ago, where, you know, a brand is not just, you know, t- you know, telling you something. It's really taking on... Um, you know a big stunt with the larger goal of being to kind of test the limits of human potential you know you had Felix jumping from the edge of space you have humans seeing how fast they can run Uh, you know in many ways something like Breaking 2 really um, you know takes a brand out of storytelling and into sort of a uh, a much more embedded role uh, as, as a, as a mentor, as a, an inspiration to runners. And, you know, on the one hand, it was, you know, very much like a embodiment of just do it. Uh, but at the same time, it was, it was more than that too. It was really, um, you know, trying to, trying to do things that have never been done before. And so I think Red Bull's got that spirit. Nike clearly has that spirit. And, you know, when you talk about ads these days, um, you know, you talk about going beyond, commercials and and print ads into sort of experiences and, and challenges and that's this thing did that amazingly yeah yeah it's a great one what else um, speaking of Burger King they did the Google home of the Whopper also a David Miami campaign where you know it was a controversial thing and I think it was gonna it was a one-off obviously it was this was one of those things where the you know someone was gonna think of it and do it and then it'll never be done again um, but it was you know they, they created a TV commercial for I believe the Fallon show the Tonight Show. Uh, where the 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 commercial said, "Okay, Google, uh, tell, tell tell me about the Whopper," and people's um, people's Google Home devices um, fired up and started talking about the Whopper. So you know, I think they they broke the ad in the afternoon on on a Wednesday, I think it was, and uh, Google was not happy about it. So Google basically did a patch on their on their Google Homes where the Google Homes weren't responding to the original sound of the voice saying that, but then. Um, burger king kind of got around that by running a different voice i think on on the fallon show so that the ad actually did work and it did cause people's google homes to start talking and obviously it was a little invasive and intrusive and, and uh you know they addressed that a little bit uh, at can this, this is a campaign that also won a grand prix at Cannes, so it was it ended up being pretty uh beloved by by ad people at least and it got a lot of press of course so it was a, a big win in pr in some ways um but again, like no one's ever going to do this again because it's already been done. But as a, as a one off, I thought it was a pretty pretty clever stunt. And again, just you know, indicative of how um, how interesting Burger King marketing uh, has become again after you know the glory days of the Crispin Porter work about a decade ago. They've really, with David, over the past I would say three or four years. Um, Burger King has really stepped up the game, and uh, this was a pretty great example of that. I like that
1: it was also inspired by an accident. You know, right that that it was a the Super Bowl ad that triggered everyone's uh, what Alexas or Google's. Yes, and um, and I like that they were
0: like, oh, they did it on accident. Let's do it on purpose. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> you know, actually, it
0: was a wi- a while back though, like three or four years ago. I remember writing a story for AdFreak about um, some Aaron Paul commercial was turning people's Xboxes off or something. Like, you know, it takes a while sometimes for the stuff to percolate, but, but you know, obviously in the last year, voice recognition and these personal assistant devices are, have become so big that hacking them is just inevitable. And this is a pretty great hack. Um, you know, the other thing I want to talk about too is the, this is a personal favorite of mine. I just love this idea where um, kind of almost like the Heinz stuff in a way, kind of de- defictionalizing, or this was actually sort of in reverse. Netflix um got Pete Souza the you know Obama's official photographer to shoot um Frank Underwood for House of Cards shoot photos of him around around DC and I just love this idea of the merging of the of the fictional and the real which of course um House of Cards has done so well over the past few years they had the you know they had the Frank Underwood uh, campaign commercial that aired um last December or maybe it was the December before, I think. Um, yeah, it was the December before where at the end of 2015 when the, the Republican presidential race still had 18 people in it. Um, and uh, they ran a, you know, BBH did a pretty funny campaign for House of Cards where they ran the campaign ad um, during a real Republican debate. And so this kind of was in keeping with that. And I just love the idea of of Washington kind of being this mix of the of the the real and the fictional and, and you know, with Trump and power the, the the surreal now you would you might say too. So I love that. And Netflix does gets high marks for me. I mean, across the board, they do so much fun stuff, but this was, this was a stunt that I particularly enjoyed from them. All right. Well, is that, is that your whole list? Is that all you got? <laughs> That's it. That's it so far. <laughs> That's only July. I'll bring more next time. Yeah. So, uh, are you going to be rounding these up on the website, or, uh, or are you going to wait till December? Uh, we are going to be posting these on the website, so look for those online in the next couple days. All
1: right. Well, thank you, Tim Nutter, creative editor. That is, uh, you put a lot of work into that, and it will make our lives a lot less painful at the end of the year when we try to remember what we actually liked this year. Uh, Christina, was there anything uh, in there that, or anything we didn't cover that you remember as being kind of any of the highlights of the year? No. All right, (laughs) it's comprehensive.
0: All right, well, I just want to make sure I offer. Wait,
2: did we talk about the cat one? Did we skip over Gravity Cat? We didn't mention
0: Gravity Cat. Um, I felt like we were going long on videos, but I love the Gravity Cat. That's the Hakuhodo ad for, um, it's some kind of cat video game or some kind of gravity-based PlayStation game.
2: It's a gravity thing, yeah. Man, is it cool, It's so cool.
0: It's like a three-minute video, and it was filmed um, for real in in an apartment that flipped upside down, and the whole thing is, is insane and awesome.
2: The actresses in that are so good. Watch it. Watch Gravity Cat. Just look it up.
0: Yeah, there were a few A
1: few we didn't get a chance to. Gravity Cat, Google that in Adweek, and you'll find it. Uh, Volvo Moments. Um, I was trying to remember, there were a few others that we had in there, and, and I'm sure there will be even more on Tim's list. So look for that on Adweek.com. And uh, that's it for, the, for this week. So thank you to you both. Uh, don't forget, you can email your questions to podcast at adweek.com. We love hearing from you. You can also hit us on Twitter. It's just at adweek, or you can track us down individually. Uh, coming soon, we've got our next tech series, uh, which is about kind of the future of tech, the future of jobs, and how it's all going to be affecting the industries that, that we cover, uh, you know, marketing, media, technology. We also got a special digital package coming on marketing to millennial parents. Uh, So keep an eye out for that. Our theme music is by Home. This episode was produced by Christina Monlos. Thank you, Christina. And please take a moment, if you have not already, to leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. It means a lot to us, and it helps new listeners discover the podcast. I'm David Greiner uh, with Adweek.com, and we will talk to you next week.